Hello everybody, welcome to Bible study. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Well, I'm glad you're here, I'll speak for myself. I'm glad you're here, and we're going to get started right away, so let's just take a moment and pray, and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thank you for being here with us. We've gathered in the name of Jesus, you say, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are right in the middle of them, and so we welcome you right into the middle of us tonight. We ask that you would lead us, you would guide our time. We pray for truth and we pray for revelation tonight. We ask God that you would speak and we would have some ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. So teach us. We pray God for your continued presence and we ask God that we would really be open in our hearts to receive all that you want to say and all that you want to do. God, I pray you fill this place with your love. Fill this place, God, with your presence. I ask, God, you'd draw us closer to you tonight. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you need a Bible, you can grab one off the table, or there should be some around, and you can feel free to help yourself to a Bible, because we'll be looking at some verses tonight together. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. As you're turning there, just a reminder, uh, we do have an interactive feature for our Monday Night Bible Study uh, via a website, www.speakpipe.com, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E. It uh, is a place you can go to leave us a message, whether it be a question or a comment, any way that you'd like to interact with us verbally. Uh, you can go there to that website slash Monday Night Bible Study, and that's all one word. Uh, There's a button to toggle. You can toggle that button and you leave what would be like a voicemail message. So if you'd like to avail yourself of that, go on over to www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study and leave us a message and interact with us that way. We'd love to hear from you. Somebody have Romans 7.21. Read that for us tonight. Alright, thanks. Now, I looked up this verse, I'll start with this because I thought it was really funny, that uh, a lot of times when I'm looking at a verse to teach on or whatever, I'll check out and see what other people say about the verse. And, and one of the places that I go to is a website, and it has some of the older commentaries on it. And by older, I mean some of them are really super old. But a lot of them are from 17, 1800s, uh, just what different people have been saying about different parts of the Bible. And the one comment that I read about this verse is that the interpretation of this verse, uh, in other words, commentary on this verse, has greatly vexed interpreters. Hmm? Greatly vexed. Number one, I think the word vex is kind of a neat word. Uh, but the fact that this is greatly vexed interpreters. Now, you heard somebody read that. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can read it yourself. Anybody here particularly feeling greatly vexed by this? No? I wonder why. Now, why do you think that this verse would greatly vex interpreters? Anybody have any idea? No one wants to admit their church. Well, okay. <laughs> well... 
Now, now <clears throat> the, the issue becomes, isn't a personal issue, although it is a personal issue, but what they would say would be that they don't want to admit Paul's a jerk. All right, see, because the Apostle Paul's writing this, uh, he's obviously been saved, so he has been regenerated, and uh, he is an apostle. He is Apostle Paul. I mean, all right. So they have a, a an idea here that greatly vexes them because here they have a person that they believe to be a certain kind of person or a certain type of person or whatever it is, and that when people come to know Jesus, there are certain qualities they're supposed to possess, and certain qualities they're not supposed to possess anymore, and it creates a conflict. It creates a problem for people who are trying to understand what it says based on a particular worldview. Well, the, the issue isn't the verse, and the issue isn't Paul, and the issue isn't what it actually says, and the issue isn't what it actually means. Those aren't really the issues. The issue is trying to take something in the scriptures and trying to jam your worldview somehow into what it says. And, and when you find yourself reading the Bible, and I'm just going to say this as a general statement, but you find yourself reading the Bible and you're greatly vexed about trying to understand something, uh, chances are, and, and I mean this in the kindest of ways, but chances are your worldview is probably a little bit mixed up or messed up. Uh, because, uh, you know, people will get vexed at the, the easiest things, I think, to really understand. They get vexed about God loving them, or they get vexed about God forgiving them, or they get vexed about the grace of God over their lives, or they get vexed about the mercy of God and how the mercy of God works in our life. They get vexed over all kinds of things that would seem obvious to someone who has a particular worldview, for example, that God loves me, He cares for me, He's looking out for me and he wants the best for me. The guy really likes me. And that's one worldview. That's one way to see it. But if you're coming at the scriptures from the idea that God is out to get me, and yet you're reading all these verses about how much he loves you, he cares for you, and he's looking out for you, and he's really on your side, that can be somewhat vexing. Because I can't understand how this says this, and yet God's out to get me. Well, that's the challenge for us. That when we run into things like this we're reading, and we run into things that, that seem like they don't make any sense or whatever, we need to check our view first. Before we judge God's view or we try to make it say something that it really doesn't say, we should probably check what the way we're seeing the world first. The way that we're looking at things, the way that we're understanding things. Because chances are, if we keep running into things in the scriptures that don't make any sense like that, we're probably wrong. And we have to come to that kind of place in our life where it's okay that we're, kind, we're probably wrong. It's okay that we have a bad way of seeing things. It's okay that we're thinking of things wrongly. It's all right. Because we're not perfect people and we don't have all the knowledge in the universe and we're not born understanding the way everything works. And in fact, life can lead us down paths that kind of, that, that, that affect our perspectives on things too. If we've been hurt by people, or people have broken our trust, or whatever the case may be in our lives, or we've been abused by people, or however things have happened or gone down in our life, that can affect the way that we see the world. In really negative ways sometimes. And we need to be aware of that at least. 
to say, okay, well, I may have a tainted view of things, or I may not be seeing this the way that other people see this. And it's okay. But just to be able to recognize that. And part of that challenge is allowing God's Word to begin to mold and begin to redirect some of those things in our life to a healthier place. I think sometimes when we get hurt, we we say things that we don't mean. Like we vow things that we don't really mean. Well, I'll never do that again. I bet you do. Alright? But you may do it in a different way. You may do it with a different perspective. You may do it with a different heart. And that's really what I'm talking about. Is the heart. Is the perspective. Is the mind. Is the paradigm we choose to live in. That's what I'm talking about. And letting that be affected by maybe what God is saying. So, he starts off by saying, he uses a word. He says, the law, doesn't he? When he starts these verses. And there's been some interpretations that try to get rid of that word, but it's a clear word. You can't really get rid of it, because that's what it says. And that's part of what's vexing people. What do they mean by the law? Well, it's not necessarily uh, something that is imposed on us by a superior. So, you know, we think of laws that way. Like, uh, think about the law, like driving laws. Driving laws are imposed on us by superiors. And when we don't think any of those superiors are around, what do we do? We break the law. In other words, I'm going I'm to speed. If I think I can get away with it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna creep through that stop sign. I mean, all you have to do is just look out the window while I'm talking and watch people just drive through stop signs right there. And they will just drive right through them. And because there's no, there's not a superior, there's not a policeman standing in the middle of the road. There's not, you know, no one's gonna stop them necessarily. And so, you know, they just come up and just go right through. Well, that's kind of the nature of things. And so when we think of law that way, that's one kind of law. And then there's other kind of laws that aren't necessarily imposed on us by a superior. Uh, at least not from most people's perspectives. I mean, you think about the law of gravity. What does the law of gravity indicate? What does it say? It means that you shouldn't jump off the building, right? All right, whether, whether someone's looking or not. All right, if somebody's watching you or not. If you jump off the building, what's going to happen? It's really likely you're going to, yeah, all right, you're going to hurt yourself. And it doesn't matter if anybody sees it. It doesn't matter if you believe in it. It doesn't matter if you think it's the right thing or not. You can be morally opposed to the law of gravity if you want to be. You, you can be philosophically opposed to the law of gravity. You can argue against the law of gravity. You can even decide you don't believe in the law of gravity. But if you jump off the building, it's still going to happen. Because that's just how it goes. And so... It, 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 there's a constraining power to it. It binds us, it controls us, it influences us. Regardless of whether or not we like it, or we agree with it, or we think it's right, or we think it's wrong, or we think it's harsh, or we think it's arbitrary, or we think it's picking on us, or we think it's, it's mean to us but not mean to other people. You know, when I was in high school, I was a high jumper. And it seemed like the law of gravity was kinder to others than it was to me. Because they would beat me at, at, uh, during our track meets. The law of gravity was out to get me. Right? 
Because I didn't win. So it was unfair. The law of gravity is unfair. They were able to jump. I wasn't very well. So they won. That's all law of gravity's fault. So whether you believe that or not, I don't, it doesn't matter. Still, it influences, it binds, it controls. It's part of life. Well, what Paul is saying here, he calls this thing a law. Is it working him? Well, it influences, it was, it was constraining to him. It was a force inside of him that was constraining to him. And he recognized it for what it was. And in our lives, what it begins to speak to, if, if that's too much fate for you, let me help you get loose from the fate idea. It, you can also think of it as a habit of acting. This is what happens. This is the way it is. And so Paul was just saying that this is the way it is. People don't like that, do they? You know, especially like somebody like the Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament. You mean this is true for him? Yep. Yeah, it was. And that's why he's bringing it out. And I think it's important to note that he's bringing it out and he's speaking to a church, like I said last week, he's talking to a church here in Rome he'd never been to before. He didn't even know these people. He'd never met these people that he's writing to. These are people that were unknown to him, and he's writing this, and he's telling them, well, this is the way it is. This was such an obvious truth. And it is such an obvious truth that this is an issue for each and every single one of us that he wasn't embarrassed writing about it. He wasn't pretending it was different than this. He wasn't trying to convince anybody it was different than this. And yet commentators for the next 2,000 years are vexed by the fact that he would actually say this. Because somewhere along the line we decided that this is showing weakness. Somewhere along the line we decided that, well, this shouldn't be his problem. He shouldn't be struggling with this. Real Christians don't struggle with this. Well, of course they do. To the point that he was so open about it, and it is such an obvious truth, that he would write it to people they didn't even know, and they'd never met before. There's nothing vexing about it. There's nothing confusing about it. It's who we are. It's our condition. It's the obvious fact of, of how life rolls out. And I think sometimes when we have these weird ideas about, well, it should be this way, but it's not that way. Well, the Bible says it. Well, yeah, I don't understand that. Let's spend 18 pages explaining Romans 7.21 in my commentary so that I can fully explain it and not have to deal with the fact that maybe I'm wrong and I see the world wrongly. Maybe my view, my theology is wrong. Maybe my Christology is wrong. Maybe my understanding of the work of Christ is wrong. Maybe my understanding of who I am in Christ is wrong. Maybe my understanding of who I'm supposed to be in Christ is wrong. Yeah, maybe. If you've got to spend 17, 18 pages to explain away something, you're probably wrong. <laughs> on, on what, one sentence here? How long is this verse? Seriously? It's like a sentence long, isn't it? 17, 18 pages to explain that away? You're likely messed up. And then, I mean, these are some, these are smart people and I'm not, whatever. It's just, just, you're likely messed up in your perspective because there's no reason to explain it away. It is an obvious human condition truth. 
Now, most of you are sitting here, why is he hammering on this? Well, I'm hammering on this because we've been taught something different. That's why I'm hammering on it. You've been taught something different. That for him to be this vulnerable, does that make any sense? I hope it does. To most of you, I hope it does. To some of you, I know it doesn't. Because you were raised differently than this. You were raised to act a certain way, look a certain way, be a certain way when you're around certain people. And that's just not how things are in reality. We are who we are. Paul was who he is. And so I I take this as a significant word for us because it was a word he gave to these people, again, Christians, that he'd never met before. And he was certainly okay with that. Somebody want to look at Roman or excuse me, Galatians five seventeen. Galatians five seventeen. Thanks for reading that. So he writes again to the church in in Galatia, which is really a series of churches, but he writes to them, and and he's just writing about this conflict. And he talks about the same conflict. He talks about the same idea that we don't live our lives just in some kind of ignorant bliss. That we're not just living our lives in some kind of robotic way that everything just goes the way we think it's going to go and we're going to be the perfect people and we're always going to do the right thing and we're always going to say the right thing and we're always going to be in the right place and we're always going to look right and we're always going to sound right and all the rest of those kind of things. And he's making a statement here to these churches too. He's willing to make a statement to these churches saying, that's just not how it is. Why is he willing to make that statement? Because it's obvious. They all know it. And he's just making a statement of what is obvious and what's going on inside of us. So he he goes and he says, when I would, back into Romans 7, he says, when I would, and that, that phrase indicates something that's not permanent. In other words, Paul was saying, he's like, I want to do what's right and I want to do what's good. I only know one definition of what's good and that's God's will. That's the only thing I can tell you is good. Anything else I'm just making a judgment on. The only thing I know that is good is God's will. And so when he's saying this, he's like, in in those times when I want to follow after God's will, I would follow after God's will. I'm like, well, that's not a permanent thing. In other words, it's not automatic for us. That's part of free will. That's part of our choice. That's part of our decision-making process. Is that we've got God's will in front of us. We've got what he has for us. What he wants for us is sitting right there. We can choose that. And sometimes we look at that and wholeheartedly we're like, that's what I want. I want that. And I'm not talking about the overall reaching statement, I always want to do God's will. Well, good for you. But you're going to be faced with something tomorrow that's going to be a choice between God's will and what you want to do. Or God's will, or God's will and what you think you're supposed to do. Or God's will and what you thought you were supposed to do. Or God's will and what you think would be easier to do. Or God's will in doing nothing. But as we all know, if you choose not to decide, what? 
Thank you, Getty Lee. Yes, that, that is absolutely correct. So whatever your, you know, whatever your choices are, there they are. They're right in front of you. And it's like, so Paul is making that statement here. He said, when I would, indicating this is not something that's automatic. It's not something permanent. It's just not. It's something that we decide. And in and, and that word, when I would, when I incline to, when I am purposed to, follow after God's will. So this is something that he's making a decision on. This is something that he is, he, he's actually actively engaging in. You don't fall into God's will. You don't fall asleep and fall on top of God's will for your life. That's not how it works. And that would be great if it was, but that's just not the way things are. These are decisions that we make. These are choices that we make in our life. God created us this way. He created a being that He could have fellowship with that, that would choose. And and he and he wants to be an influence in our life. He wants to be a part of our life. He wants to be in in us and through us and all the rest of those kind of things. But we have a choice in that. No being that he made doesn't have a choice as far as any sentient being. You look at the angels. The angels had a choice. How do we know that? Because they rebelled. A third of them rebelled. They all had a choice in that. He made us. We have choices to make. That's how He created us. He wants us that way. And so for us to deny the basic way that God created us, to deny the the fact that we have a choice, is foolishness. And it's denying God Himself in us. It's denying the image that we were created in. And so in order for us to have a choice, it means that we can choose wrongly we can choose to do what we want we can choose to do the selfish thing we can choose not to make a choice we can choose anything but god's will or we can choose god's will those are our choices but that's how he wants us that's the image we were created in and he wants us making those kind of choices i mean we've gotten this so weird that we talk about jesus and we and, and we get to the part where it talks about how jesus was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin And people will get all upset with that verse. Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And they will argue, and I've heard it preached from the front of a church, well, he couldn't have sinned. Well, then what does that verse mean? That's going to be 17 or 18 pages to explain that away. Because what does that verse mean except that he chose not to sin? He exercised the choice that he had. He exercised the free will. And he didn't sin. But he could have sinned. Well, you can't say that. Well, sure you can. If it wasn't possible for him to sin, he couldn't have chosen not to. But he chose not to. That's what makes it awesome. It makes it great he chose not to. That that all makes it great. That it even amplifies his decision. It amplifies his life even more. That he could have and he didn't. To me, that makes perfect sense. And so here we are. We got choices. But we have an example. We have a man who, who by the power of the Holy Spirit chose not to. We have, we have an example. And so we live our lives and we can make choices in our life. There's always something fighting that. There's always alternatives. There's always something that we could choose. There's always something easier. I mean, for sure, there's always something easier. Always something we could do that would be an easier choice than following after what God has for us. Always. 
Be, uh, people, I'm on a roll, Dave. Give me a second. People, and, and, and that's and it's true. When people, um, when people follow their call, and, and I run into this all the time. It's like, well, I'm going to follow the call God put on my life. Well, good, go for it. I want to encourage you. I'll keep encouraging you. Wow, things just aren't working out. Yeah, they never do. Yeah, that that's not a shocker. Because there's always something else to do. There's always something easier to do. And, and I don't know how to explain that to people. I don't, I don't even know how to, to get that across. It's like God's will for my life. Awesome. Yes, I want that. Well, well, this is easier, right? Right? Like something in our brains exists like, well, if I follow after God's will, it's all going to be easy from now on. No, it's this the harder choice. It's always the harder choice. What Jesus described is like, you know, Jesus is talking about which, there's two ways you can go, right? There's the, there's the wide, wide road you can go down the superhighway, or there's the little podunk road that you can barely fit down. Which is easier? The big wide highway is always the easier choice. And there's exits off the little podunk road to get on the big wide highway all the time. And so that choice is always there. It's always there. But you make you got to make your choices, Dave. Yes. Uh, uh, back to when, when uh, people argue that you know Jesus could, couldn't have sinned. Mm-hmm. Well, if he couldn't have sinned, then how could he have been tempted? It states plainly clearly that he was tempted. That's where the seventeen or eighteen pages have to come from. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Right, and I know, I, and I totally understand that, and I agree with it. And again, if you've got to do a gymnastic to get away from a plain statement, you got to change your perspective. All right, that—that's the challenge for us. We got to change our perspective because I ain't that flexible anymore. All right, so I'm not doing any backflips anymore. Never, I never did any black backflips. That's just saying I didn't do that. Well, dogmatism is a powerful, powerful temptation for us because it provides a false sense of order over our lives. And so people will grab hold of that. They'll grab hold of a, a dogma. They'll grab hold of a whatever to make themselves feel safer. And and that's just that's just what it is. So I, for, for whatever that's worth, it's what it's worth. But you are correct in your assessment on that. And so it gets down to the word evil. Is the word evil in your translation somewhere? In back in Romans 7.21, you see evil there somewhere? Evil. Evil. Alright, so a lot of people want to try to make that word evil. And they want to say, well that's original sin. No. No. Evil is just evil. Alright, and, and I don't know, and I know Christians don't want to believe this, uh, but there's evil in us. Did you know that? <laughs> Have you ever thought about maybe the evil that's in you? A little bit? Don, don't shake your head. No. Um, <laughs> but the evil that is in us, we don't, we don't need to package that into blaming Adam for it, okay? 
You don't need to blame somebody for the evil that's in you. It's just in you. Alright, you don't need to blame Adam because you're selfish. You don't need to blame Adam because you're looking out for yourself for certain things. You don't need to blame Adam because you lied about that thing because it was easier. You don't want to blame Adam because you stole that or whatever it was. You don't want to blame Adam because you fell into some kind of temptation or sin. Don't blame him. Alright, there's plenty of evil in us. And, and, And that's just plainly true. Paul knew that, he was stating it out plainly, even to people he didn't even know, because it's an obvious statement. The other side of that is is that we've been set free from Adam. You've been set free from Adam, I've been set free from Adam. Why do I say that? John chapter 3, if you want to go there you can, but that's that famous passage there where if you go down through, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at night, and he's explaining to him about what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus asked him, he said, well, what am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb to, to be born again? Now, first of all, the physical impossibility of that aside, <laughs> and it's kind of gross, but what I'm trying, what he was getting at was he was making a point, he was making a point about that seems impossible, that statement. And so Jesus made the statement. He says, well, you're born twice. He said, you're born of water and you're born of the Spirit. And the way I interpret that is you're physically born one time. It's being born of water without getting into any kind of explanation about what happens when we're born and what happens to your mom and all that. You're born of water and then you're born of the Spirit. So we have a physical birth and we have a spiritual birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's why I believe that's what water was indicating there. Jesus goes back. He reiterates the point. He says that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Right. So, how was Jesus conceived? By the Spirit. Okay. So what he was saying was that he was conceived by the Spirit. When we're born again, again, we are conceived by... The Spirit. So what that verse and that whole passage of verses, it leads us down this path that says this, we've been set free. That we can't blame Adam anymore. That we who have been born of the Spirit, we are spirit. Right? That, that work of the flesh and the work of the flesh that was passed down through Adam, that whole theology ends at Jesus at us being born again. So, we don't have that excuse. I don't, I don't, I don't live on that excuse. Because that is an excuse. So now it comes down to, well, if that evil in me is not Adam's fault, then, then who allows for that evil in me? Who allows that? You do. I do. Who allows it in me? I do. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, we allow for it. We make room for it. We coddle it. We, Stroke it. We like it. Alright? Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. And so, that evil... What was that? But the devil made me do it. Now, that reminds me of someone that no one in this room is going to know who I'm talking about. So, No, no. It's it's a comedian that used to be... Well, I shouldn't say nobody in this room. I'm sure there's some people almost my age. But, okay. Don, Don, who am I thinking of when you say that the devil made me do it? Flip Wilson, right? Yep. Yep. 
Right. That was her. That was her. Uh, that was her tagline. That was her funny line. It's just old people talk. Don't worry about it. It's us old people reminiscing. Don't worry about it. We'll be done in a second. <laughs> okay. So that word evil. That word evil, and I want you to keep this in mind for the rest of the teaching. That word evil is referred to, uh, you go back into uh, interpreting the Old Testament, where the, the word's used. Uh, the Jewish interpreters, they would refer to that as the evil imagination that's in us. Uh, they weren't trying to blame the devil, and they weren't going to blame Adam. <laughs> but what they did blame, and what they did look at, is those things that we hold in ourselves. You think about what the imagination what, what that uh, indicates in us, what that represents in us. What is your imagination? And all that lives in your imagination, all that's there. All right, we've all got things that live in our imagination. And so they would interpret that evil that's in us as the evil imagination. It's that part of us. Because you can't really say it's anything that's real. You can't really say it's anything that, that even is logical most of the time. Or that really makes a ton of sense, but it's a part of our imagination. And really, your imagination doesn't need to make any sense, does it? Isn't that where things that don't make any sense live? Isn't that where the certain creativity lives in certain things? I mean, um, I, you know, I want to encourage imagination in us. I really do. And that's part of what you see around us is encouraging imagination. And it's encouraging you to let that imagination flow. Now, but part of that imagination is evil. And I'm not saying I want you to let the evil imagination flow, but imagination in general. I want to see that. I want to see that kind of creativity. I want to see uh, people like expanding out with ideas and things that, that maybe no one's thought of or that we don't know or we've never seen before. But, but maybe God's speaking to you or God's showing you or God is indicating to you. You know, I look around the church sometimes and there's a, there's a lion head on top of a wall over there. <laughs> And that's because somebody's imagination led them to that. And there, and one day in church, there came dancing into church a line of people following after that lion head. And that lion head on somebody's head. Now that wasn't something I ever thought of happening. <laughs> it never crossed my mind that, that was actually going to happen or anything until I saw it there. And so in someone's imagination, someone they, they made that and they got together with with their kinship or whoever it was, and they made that thing, and they came into that music, and it was part of something that God revealed them or showed them or whatever it was, but it came to life, and it's real. And I looked up there the other day, and I'm like, and I was looking at that, I'm like, that thing's still there. <laughs> well, good, it's nice. I mean, you know. But it made me think of that, and it made me think of releasing imagination in us. Because there is good imagination in us. There are things that, that need to come out. Things that need to be brought out from our hearts and our spirits and our souls. But as part of us and part of that place in us, there's some evil stuff too. And, and you know what? It is what it is. And it's always been. 
Ever since the fall, you think about after Genesis and or after the, the beginning of Genesis when there's Adam, there's Eve, they're in the garden and the fall comes and they're cast out of the garden and then they start to have their family and then the generations begin to grow up. I mean, that's Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. What happens in Genesis chapter 6? Anybody remember? Noah. Yeah, it's right before Noah. Genesis 6, 5. Anybody want to read that? Yeah, yeah, Genesis 6, 5. Here's what happens when your evil imagination takes over. Genesis 6, 5. <laughs> the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. How many absolute words are in that one <laughs> statement? Every, all, you know, like, everything, all of it, it was just bad. Huh? Only, yeah, I mean, so many absolute words in one statement. Like, that was just bad. I mean, that was just bad. And and every inclination, but, but look at it. Do you see how the evil imagination is described there? That is the evil imagination. But that's the evil imagination taken over. That's what happens when that takes over everybody. Right? And it can take over you and it can take over me. And it can take over people. It can take over a nation. It can take over groups of people. You know, you think about, well, how, how can those people be so hateful? Well, the evil imagination just took them right over. Not that they're not part of it. Of course they are. Not that they're not complicit. Of course they are. They're compliant. They're participating in it. But it can happen. And I, and I, and I see in, in Genesis 6 5, you see that. You see, how, how something like that can take over not only one person, but groups of people. Not only groups of people, but whole nations of people. How do those kind of evil things happen in the world? It's the evil imagination. Now, I'm not saying that, that you know, that happens a lot or all that. It doesn't. But it's a part of who we are. That's the only reason I, I brought up that verse, is that you can see it. God describes it. He describes it in how it works in people. And he says, that that evil, that all that is present with me. That's what Paul describes back in Romans 7. He's like, that is present with me. It's near, it's at hand. And, and, and we don't get the indication it's actively called on either. And it could even be undesired. I mean, how many times in, in your life you think that something comes up that, man, you wish you really hadn't thought of that? Or something comes up, wow, I wish I wasn't really considering this. Or, or, yeah, I can't believe that keeps coming up. Think about stuff that causes bitterness in your life. If you're kind of a bitter person, do you call on bitterness? You call on bitterness? Hey, I wish I had more bitterness in my life. No. No. But there are certain things in your life that will feed that, aren't there? Certain things, if you allow your mind to go certain places, doesn't that feed bitterness in your life? Sure. Didn't that feed hatred? Doesn't that feed all kinds of things that are destructive in your life? Sure, if you just let it roll. That's how it happens. But we all have that in us. I don't want to let that roll. I don't want to let that grow. I don't want that kind of, I don't want to feed anger in my life. I have a problem with anger. I don't want to feed that. And so I, I, I try to stay out of situations where it's going to get fed. And when I, when I feel it coming up in me, I know I've got to do something about it. I'm going to let that go. 
I'd be a bad person. Let that go. For me and for people around me. And so we make decisions and we, we, we do certain things, even on undesired stuff. And we see things rising up to make a different decision. Psalm 65.3, somebody. Psalm 65.3. What does that verse tell you about what can happen to people? You get overwhelmed. How's God? How did God respond to that? He forgives you. All right. If you need seventeen pages of commentary in your brain to explain that verse, you probably have a bad view of God. Because what that verse says is, for people who are overwhelmed by the evil that's in them, He still forgives. Because the possibility of us being overwhelmed every now and then exists. Possibility for Paul being overwhelmed existed. And he made that clear. And he said that. He said that the evil, what evil? The evil in him is always present with him. Meaning what? It was near, it was at hand. Even when he didn't want it to be there. And he was opposing it. And it was undesired. And all of those things, it was adjacent to him and it was always at hand in his life. He was carrying that with him. Following him around had the potential to hinder what God wanted to do in and through his life. That's him. How about us? Sure. That's why he's writing to the Romans. This is the human condition. Even for a spiritual folk such as yourself, this is the human condition. Even for people that have been born of the Spirit, this is a human condition. Even for someone empowered by the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, used in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, used in extraordinary miracles as Paul was, someone who the revelation of the Scripture had been given to, someone who had had revelation of Jesus face to face, yeah, still had issues like we all do. We all do. The Romans did, he does, and it's adjacent, always at hand, following us, hindrance. And so, again, what this comes down to, all I know that is good is God's will. And so, you got God's will that's good, and then you got all the other stuff. What other choices you have? Every choice I was mentioning before. You got all those choices, including no choice. And there's always easier choices than the choice to do God's will. Always. You know, there's an old sermon I used to teach. I used to go around and I'd preach it at churches. And, you know, like, I don't know how many churches I preached a sermon in, but there's always a thousand reasons not to do what God's told you to do. And always just one reason to do it. That's because He said it. You can always come up with a reason not to do what God told you. Always. I, I can come up with reasons. I can help you come up with reasons. If you really want more reasons to not do what God told you to do, there's thousands, there's a thousand reasons not to do it. There's only ever one good one. And that's because He said so. And if you're looking for the second good one, I don't know what that is. I just don't. 
Because, I mean, you can try to run circles around doing God's will, say, well, it'll benefit me. Well, maybe, but that's not going to work for everyone that He tells you to do, is it? No. You say, well, I can see that it's good for me. Well, that might work for one or two, but it's not going to work for everyone because sometimes He'll give you His will and it doesn't look like it's good for you at all. And so that's not a good reason. There's only one good reason. It's because He said it. And you forget that. And you, you want to try to come up with a different reason. You want to try to justify. You want to try to, to figure it out. You want to try to somehow bring it together in your brain to convince yourself of what? That you should do it? Well, he said it. That's the reason you should do it. And so everything else, every other reason we kind of come up with to do what God wants us to do, we're just making it up anyway. That's pretty flimsy. And it's going to be found out and it's going to fall down. It's a bad house. It's going to fall down. So, so why are we doing it? So we have a choice. We have choices. I have choices. You have choices. So we got good, the will of God. Okay, that's good. And then we've got all the other choices. My will, their will, her will, his will, their will, whoever's will, the government's will, whoever's will it is, that's by definition not good. Necessarily, unless it's God's will. So, so we're kind of brought into that place. As I was reading through this, I was reminded, going all the way back to the beginning, and, and kind of, you know, I always look at the, the, the teachings of the New Testament church, and they always bring us back to a more primitive faith. Because remember, we're leaving behind the, the whole law and the system of the law, and all that stuff that came about thousands of years after God revealed himself. And after men began to worship God and, and all of that, there was a, a formalized religion that took place thousands of years into it that lasted for a few thousand years, but then we have what we have now. And so instead of focusing on that one period of time, I believe the New Testament begins to take us back to a more primitive faith. So Genesis 4-7 is back toward the beginning. And there, this is a primitive faith going on here. And what you have in Genesis 4-7, you have brothers that are worshiping God. How are they worshiping God? Well, we don't know why they did what they did. They just did. They offered a sacrifice. No one told them they had to. There wasn't some law that was written saying, you must offer sacrifices. They were expressing their heart or they're expressing what they believed to be their worship of God. And so they decided that they were going to worship God in such a way as the fruit of their labor. So it was a fruit of labor. One was a shepherd and one was a farmer. And so the farmer brought his stuff to the, to the Lord and he offered it. The shepherd brought his to the Lord. He offered it. And God accepted one sacrifice. He didn't accept the other. Why? Well, he explains it, but, you know, that's it. Again, there's no formalization here. This is a primitive faith. And what happened was, is that the, 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 the brother whose offering wasn't accepted got really upset about it. His name was Cain, right? And he found his brother Abel and he killed him. Somebody read Genesis 4 7. This is God speaking to Cain. Alright, so God's word to Cain 
was stop making excuses. Take responsibility for your actions. Take responsibility for your life. Take responsibility for yourself as an individual. You have choices to make. That's what he tells him. You have choices to make. And he gives him a warning. He said, sin is crouching at your door. That's what he says to him. And the idea, the picture, that's a word picture. And the word picture behind that was like a lion. You ever watch a cat ready to pounce? Yeah. Stalking outside your door ready to pounce. That's what he. That's how he describes sin to him. That's God speaking to Cain. It's like sin is crouching outside your door. But then he gives him, what does he tell him? What's his instruction to him? You, you must rule over it. So, if you go outside and you know sin is crouching outside your door and you don't make any provision for it and it pounces on you and it, and it pounces on you and what what's God telling Cain there? What's he saying? If you made no provision and sin just pounces on you, are you a victim? No. No. You were warned. You've been told. You've been told that this is the condition we live in. You've been told that this is the condition under which you exist. You have been told that this is how things are and this is the way of the world. You've been told that you have a choice to make. And so Cain wasn't going to be a victim. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to live like that. And I'm thankful that God removes that choice from us as Christians, that we don't live as victims. That's not the way He put us into this world. That's not the way that He established things with us. He established with us that we have choices to make and that the the result of our choices are the result of our choices. And that's our responsibility. And He gives us that. That's a gift. That he gives us. And so we have choices to make every day. But understand that there's a part of us that is not going to like that. There's a part of us that wants the easy way. There's a part of us that wants to blame somebody else. There's always a part of us that doesn't want to take responsibility. There's always that part of us that wants to blame or wants to, to, to you know, make somebody else the problem. Always, always, always. Even God himself. We will make God Himself the problem before we'll take responsibility. Well, this is God's fault. Really? Yeah. We have choices. You have choices. I have choices. And we can make those choices. And again, the only thing I know that's good is God's will. And there's a thousand other choices to make other than that. So you have to purpose, purpose on a daily basis and come into the habit of acting on God's will for your life. And if you can come into the habit of acting on God's will for your life, you can make that a law in your life. And by that I mean all the best characteristics of what that means for us as a people.
But that's our choice. That's not imposed. It's not something that is, is anything that we have to do. It's just we become a part of a habit of seeing that taking place in our lives. Does that mean it's always going to be? No, nope, you can make a different choice. You can always choose to do something else. You can always choose the selfish choice. You can always choose the easier route or the easier way. Always. That's your prerogative. That's your freedom. That's your liberty. That's God-given. So be free. But my only thing I'm trying to encourage you to is make a better choice. Got a couple minutes if anyone has any questions or comments. We'll take that. Anything you thought of while I was talking or you want to comment on? Question? But not my fault. But not my fault. Right. right. <laughs> Correct. All the way back to the very first sin. Right. Right. It is a human condition. But denying it doesn't make it go away. I think exposing it encourages us toward a better choice. Let's pray. I encourage you to respond. Father, thanks for uh, the love that you pour out into our lives. And I thank you for uh, just the courage of those that have come before us. I thank you for the courage of Paul just to speak to this condition, this, the way that this is how it is. As obvious as it would seem to him, I pray that it would be that obvious to us. That this is how we're made, this is who we are. And you have purpose in our life to give us choices to make. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the liberty and I thank you for the freedom to live our lives in, in a, to be able to make those kind of choices and to be able to seek after that which we're looking for and that which we purpose in our hearts to do. And so God, I, I thank you that uh, your will is revealed and I pray God that we would have really open eyes and open ears and hearts to really see your will and to have a clear choice toward that. And so for our lives, I, I just ask you for your call and for God, your direction for us and for what you have for us. I just pray, Father, that, that we would clearly uh, see that as we make our choices and we make our decisions. For God, I just ask that you would lead us and guide us, and I pray that we would be a people led of your Spirit, that we would be a people led by your Word, we would be a people, God, that we would allow you to shape our, our outlook, we would allow you to shape our views, we would allow you to shape the way that we see the world that we live in, the way that we see ourselves, the way we see you. 
I pray would be shaped by your truth and be shaped by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray you teach us what it is to make hard decisions, what it is to make tough decisions, decisions that are unpopular sometimes, decisions that other people don't always understand. But I pray that we'd be a people of courage and be a people of boldness to make the decisions that we need to make. God, I I just ask that you teach us not to make the easy choices all the time. That you would teach us not to just take the easy road. You would teach us not to just not decide anything or not say anything because it's easier in the moment. But God, I pray that we'd be a bold people. And I pray it would be a people of courage in our own personal lives to follow after you and to follow after what you have for our lives. So God, tonight, thanks for the opportunity to really live, the opportunity to really lead a life and to actually take hold of the life that you've given us, not just to be tossed around by every wind or every current, not to be led by masses of people like herds of cattle, but to really take hold of your will and your purposes and your plan and to make bold decisions for our own lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the power. Thank you for the strength. Thank you for the insight. Thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you, God, for the work and the birth of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. Amen.